We've been singing about the gospel today. And as we are saved, as we are saved by the blood of Christ, when we put our faith in Him, when we repent of our sin, Christ calls us to live a certain way. He calls us to holiness. He calls us to grow in our Christ-likeness. And that's a message also found in the Old Testament, growing in holiness, growing in the way that we view God, the way that we view ourselves, and then living the practical teachings of Scripture out. We've been working our way through Ecclesiastes, which is the God-inspired word through King Solomon, of how to live in this world. How do we live as one of God's followers, as one of God's people in this world? And it's not easy because there's a lot that goes on in this world, and Solomon's been addressing that. Many people think it's a pessimistic book with no hope. I think the better way to understand it, if you look at his own words, is that he's using the language of the world to get our attention, and then he gives us the solution. And sometimes even the language of the world is things that he chased, things that he tried. And once he's got our attention, he gives us that punch. He gives us that that wake-up call that we need. And so now we're halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've learned a lot. There's more lessons to learn. Even today, he has lessons for us. If you would, turn to chapter 6 of the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 6, Lessons on Life Under the Sun. Now, I'm going to read from the NASB, but I've made some changes as I translated the passage, and I'll explain those as I go through the exposition through the sermon. Some of these changes are in your footnotes if you have the NASB. Ecclesiastes 6, starting in verse 1. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is heavy upon men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is Havel, and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in Hevel and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything, yet has more rest than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place? All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires." This too is Hevel and a striving after wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase Hevel. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his Hevel life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? We have some lessons here that we still need to learn, Solomon says. And if you're like me, you sometimes can be very stubborn in learning the lessons in life that you need to learn. 
I remember as a child, I had to continue learning how to do things the right way, or I'd get in trouble by my parents. Now that I have children, I have to tell them, sometimes it seems like a hundred times, how to do something over and over and over. Well, as human beings, believer or unbeliever, we can be stubborn. We can be stiff-necked, as the Old Testament called Israel. We can be hard-hearted, and it takes us a long time to learn a lesson. And even as a, a believer, a follower of Christ, we have to be told over and over and over. It's why we have this whole book right here that we can't master in one life. And you read it as a believer and you're continuing to learn new things. You're continuing to change your life to live for the Lord. We have to be taught the same lessons over and over. And it's one of the reasons that God gave us the Bible. It's, it's the reason he gave it to his people, not only telling us how to be saved, but how to be sanctified, how to grow, how to be holy like God is holy. We need to learn, Solomon says, how to live rightly in the world. And he went through the first couple of chapters just telling us what he had experienced, what he had tried when he was running from the Lord. And he said, here's what I did. I chased things. I chased women. I chased money. I chased drink. And it was all Hevel. It was all a fleeting vapor. That's what the Hebrew word Hevel means. And it's throughout the book. It's one of the main themes of the book. The things of this world are fleeting. They're passing. They're like a mist. They're a vapor. They're smoke. They're here one minute. They're gone the next, just like our lives. And if we're not careful, we'll end up chasing the vapor and the mist, the wind, and not having anything when it's all said and done and we die. In chapters 3 through 6, he started to t teach us more about God. He started to tell us about his observations that he had seen in the world. The preacher, King Solomon, learned that God has a design for all things. That God created all things. That God is providentially in control of all things. And even when we think God's not in control of something, He actually is. Now we've seen that section conclude with the end of chapter 5. By the way, each of these sections concluded with the command that we ought to enjoy what God has given. So the end of chapter 2, uh, enjoy the things that God has given. Work God has given. The fruit of our labor that God has given. And at the end of chapter 5, enjoy what God has given. God has even empowered His people with the ability to enjoy those things. Now we start a new section here in chapter 6. But much of these topics that he's already brought up will come back again. And he's weaving them together for a new purpose now in chapter 6. What I want you to see in this chapter is that he gives us three lessons on life under the sun. Three lessons on life under the sun. And he gives us those so that we would all fear God rightly in this life. And honor him as a sovereign Lord of all creation. Three lessons on life under the sun so that we would all fear God rightly in this life and honor Him as the sovereign Lord of all creation. The book of Ecclesiastes is a lot about God's sovereignty. It teaches us much about it. Often we think of Ephesians, Romans, Job, maybe Genesis when it comes to teaching on God's sovereignty. But I would say Ecclesiastes should be in that mix as well. It tells us a lot about God's sovereignty. So the first, the first lesson Solomon wants to teach us is that fearing God 
is more satisfying than wealth. It's more satisfying than wealth. Money, things, possessions. However you define wealth. That fearing God is of utmost importance. It's got to be the number one thing in our life. Fearing God includes believing in Him, trusting in Him, believing in His Savior, being holy like God is holy, continuing to grow in your holiness. It means that you reverence God, that you're in awe of Him. Fearing God means that you love the Lord with a zeal, with intensity. And now, He's going to teach us the lesson that we ought to fear God more than we love things. He's going to offer two case studies. So Solomon likes to bring up case studies. First couple of chapters were case studies on his own life. And since then, he's been throwing out, there's a man, there's a man, there's a man that was like this, and this happened to him. We see that in verse 1. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun. This is his formula that he uses in Ecclesiastes to introduce specific examples or case studies. And he tells us right away, we're back under the sun now. We're not looking at this from God's viewpoint. This is not from the knowledge that a person would necessarily have of all of Scripture. This is how the world thinks. This is how the unbeliever thinks, or the backsliding believer, or the believer who still lives like the world. And he says, I've seen something under the sun, on the earth. Not above the earth, not in the heavens, but just right here in humanity, in this earthly life. This is how the world looks. This is how things work. And he tells us, what I'm about to tell you is heavy. NASB says prevalent, meaning that it's common, but a better translation is it's heavy upon mankind. It's oppressive. It's a sad thing. It's a heavy thing to deal with as we look at the world, particularly for the unbeliever who has no hope that things would get better. This is heavy. This weighs upon humanity. And the context is going to show us as we look through this that really what he's calling heavy is the problem that the world has with God's sovereignty. It's heavy to think about the way God does things and he doesn't do them the way we want him to. God doesn't act the way that the world wants him to. Sometimes even the believer will say, God's not giving me what I want. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't God want justice in the world? Doesn't God want to be fair? That's not fair. And you'll see this theme throughout this whole chapter. The idea that mankind is saying, it's not fair, God, what you're doing. I don't like how you're running the world. And so mankind has a real complaint, Solomon says. He's not saying it's justified. He'll deal with it before we get done with the chapter. He starts with his first case study. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. This man has everything that he would ever want in life. God has given it to him. He has all the money a person could ask for. He has honor, it says, among others in the world. Other people respect him, in other words. He lacks nothing that he could wish for. And Solomon says, God has given this man these things. Anything good that people receive comes from the hand of God. Every good thing that comes into the world must come from God. There is no other source of good. 
doesn't come from us. He's already established that throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. The whole Bible says that. Man's not good. Man's born in sin. We desire sin. Even when we do things that are good, we have the wrong motives in our heart. It's just to get attention. It's just to get what we want as an unbeliever. Now, as a believer, we're supposed to do things for the glory of God. We can indeed do things that are good because God is good and he gives us that ability. But Solomon says, this man, he has everything. God has given him everything. Jesus says something similar in Matthew 5.45, that God causes his son, the sunshine, to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's a good thing. That God gives good things to all his creation. And Solomon says, but here's the complaint. Even though this man has everything, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them. For a foreigner enjoys them. This man has everything, it says, that his soul would want, that he desires with his inner being. But yet he can't enjoy them. God's not granted the ability to really enjoy them. Why? Because a foreigner just means a stranger in Hebrew, someone outside this man's family has gotten these things, now possesses them. So the man can't enjoy them. None of his family can enjoy them. Now look back at chapter 5 and verse 19. This is what we looked at last week. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, so God gives riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them, and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. So God gives all good things. But to some people who have those good things, he empowers them to enjoy them. He makes them able to enjoy the fruit of a person's labor. The gifts that God gives. Now who are those people? Well, We saw back at uh, the end of chapter 2 and throughout chapter 3 that these are the people who follow God. These are God's people. It said that he, t- he takes what the unrighteous pile up, what the sinner piles up, and he transfers it to the believer's account. Now, it's not prosperity gospel. You don't just say some mumbo jumbo, give your tithe, and then you get rich. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying the way that God works on the big screen, on the big level, is that he transfers these assets around. And we don't even often notice it. And that ultimately... His people will possess the whole earth. That's what the kingdom is all about. Well, in 519, God gives the reward. He gives the gifts and he gives the power to enjoy them. But here in chapter six, this man does not have the ability to enjoy them. The old commentator, Matthew Henry says, because this man will not serve God with it, God denies him the power to serve himself with it. This man has everything that he wants, but he doesn't care about God. You can, you can tell the way Solomon words it. So that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. But what about the soul's desire for God? There's no mention of that. God's given him the riches, but the man says, I want all these things, and yet he can't even enjoy them. The fact that God does not permit him to enjoy all the gifts that have been given in this life It frustrates that man and it frustrates other people as they look at that scenario. It's not right, is what the world says. It's not 
fair that a person could have so much and not enjoy them. But the point is, God controls both the giving of gifts and the enjoyment of those gifts. And sort of a side lesson is, things aren't always as they appear. Sometimes we look at others and we think, this would be great to have their life, to have their things, to have their house, to have their family. And Solomon's saying, sometimes people have all these things and they can't even enjoy them. So don't go chasing after things. The point is to fear God, to trust in Him. Now it continues on and it says, this is Havel, or vanity in some translations. This is Havel and a severe affliction, a sickening tragedy is one way that you could translate that. It makes you sick. It's a tragedy. It seems so bad. This guy has everything that a person could have. The cars, the house, the lake house, the mountain home, the beach house, the money, the life, and he can't enjoy it. Doesn't even tell us necessarily what happened. Somebody else just got possession of it. And so this is heavy upon mankind. The view from the world is it's just not fair. It's just not fair. That's the complaint against God's sovereignty. Prosperity in life is not always as good as it might appear. In other words, the grass is not always greener on the other side. Stop looking at other people's life, Solomon says, and thinking they have it great, that you want their life, that you want all that they have. Instead, make sure that your heart is right with God, because that's the most important thing. That's really the theme of the book. Fear God and obey His commandments. Stop chasing the world. Stop thinking, if I just get the new technology, a new laptop, a new iPhone, a new car, a new house, a perfect marriage, a perfect uh, group of kids, it's all going to be great, perfect job. So if you have all those things and can't enjoy it, what does it matter? It's Hevel. It's, it's like a mist. It's a vapor. One minute you think everything is great, and the next minute it's all gone. It's gone. It's a severe affliction that that happens that way. Well, then, somebody might object then. Well, this guy had a short life. It seems like maybe he died early. Maybe he had no children because they're not mentioned. That's probably why he was not able to enjoy it. Maybe the key is having children, having a family. I mean, he had all this money. And so Solomon says, okay, case study number two. And then he starts to exaggerate. So you can't have an excuse. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be. Now he is using hyperbole. There are people in the Bible who had many children, often by many wives. There are Muslims throughout history who have had hundreds of children by multiple wives in their harem. I looked up the highest number on record that one woman has had in the number of children. 69 children in the 1700s. Uh, She had so many groups of uh, twins and triplets. A Russian woman and 69 children. But he's using this hyperbole for a reason. Because the idea of children and living many years is a great blessing in the ancient world. And rightly so. The Bible teaches Psalm 127. Solomon wrote Psalm 127, by the way. And starting in verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord, of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So you could say, Solomon's saying, this man has multiple quivers. His quiver is just overflowing. Okay, say he has a hundred children. And say he lives a long life. It's not like he had a hundred children and then died. He lives a long, healthy life. That's also in Scripture. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. 
as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. Deuteronomy 5.16. He told Israel, do what I say, obey my commandments, fear me, trust me, and you'll live a long time and you'll be happy there. Proverbs. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. So Solomon is saying this man has everything that the ancient man would think is a blessing. Huge family. He lives a long time, but his soul is not satisfied with good things. You see, the key is not just having a big family. It's not just having a long life either. His soul's not satisfied with the good things that he has. Even then, if God gives him wealth and he gives him possessions, he's still not satisfied. He wants more. He's not happy. He's not content. The grass is not greener on the other side. Although everything looks good from the outside in this person's life, they're not satisfied. Their soul is not content. His life is without purpose. Literally, his soul is not fulfilled. There's nothing there. He has what the ancient world said is great, but he really doesn't have any purpose in life. He's not happy. Now, there's a bad teaching out there that says, you know, you have a big hole in your heart because you're not content. And you just need Jesus to fill that hole. And that's the gospel. Has anybody heard that gospel? I heard it for many years. That's not what Solomon is saying. He's saying, if you're not a follower of God, we might say, if you're not a Christian, a true Christian, you can't even enjoy all the blessings that God gives. That's what he's saying. He's not saying, oh, you have a bad life. Just trust God and everything will be perfect. God will fill that hole up and your life's going to be great. That's kind of the modern gospel. That's not what Solomon's saying. He's saying the only people who can even be empowered to enjoy the gifts that God gives are his people, are those who fear him and follow him. We would say believers today. And this poor man doesn't even have a proper burial, he says. He's not satisfied his whole life, and then he comes to die, and he doesn't even get a proper burial. Now, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel considered burial an important responsibility. If your family died, it's your responsibility to put on the funeral, to make sure they get buried, to prepare the tomb ahead of time. Remember when they took Jesus down from the cross? Joseph of Arimathea put Jesus in the tomb that Joseph had bought for himself. You bought a tomb ahead of time, much like people buy cemetery plots ahead of time now. You prepare for your own death, you prepare for your family member's death. Well, to not bury somebody, to not go ahead and have this funeral in ancient times was improper treatment of your family members. It makes you unclean because you just left a dead body to rot. The idea here is nobody even came to take care of the body. A hundred children and nobody buried the guy. And not only that, it's a sign of someone being cursed. To not be buried properly is, is what you would do to somebody who's been cursed by God. Just leave him out in the wilderness for the animals to pick apart. So Solomon is, is exaggerating to make a point. That something is wrong with this guy's life. He had a hundred children and not one of them cared to bury their father. Not one of them. You thought he had it all, but he really didn't. Something's going on in that family. Their heart's not right with God. This man's heart was not right with God. Because a life without God is no life at all. 
It's just one of walking around spiritually dead. The guy walks around his whole life thinking he has everything that a person could ask for, but knowing in his heart that he doesn't, then he dies and nobody even cares, not even his own family. Even if you have all this wealth, it can't be enjoyed unless God blesses you to enjoy it. Who does he bless? He blesses his people, those who trust in him, those who say, I I can't enjoy this without you, God. This means nothing to me. I'd get rid of it all just for you. That's why Jesus said you must take up your cross and follow him. You're willing to leave it behind if he calls you to do it. So Solomon continues on with this this sort of worldly way of thinking here. I think he's giving it to us as a picture, as an image. I don't think at the time that he wrote this book, he, he believed this in his heart. He's saying, here's what the world says. I say better the miscarriage than this guy. Better the miscarriage. This is a pretty serious charge. I mean, already the guy's not been buried. His, his wealth wasn't satisfactory to him. He lived all those years. That didn't make him happy. And now Solomon's throwing out this charge. Better the miscarriage. Now, David uses this analogy of a miscarriage when speaking of his enemies in Psalm 58, 8. He says, let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriage of a woman which never sees the sun. So why would Solomon use this analogy? Why would he use such a strong picture for this man's life? Well, look at the next verse. He explains it. If you just keep reading sometimes in the Bible, the question gets answered. For it comes in Hevel and goes into obscurity, darkness. And its name is covered in obscurity. He's talking about the miscarriage. Hevel again fleeting like the wind. The woman finds out she's pregnant and then suddenly loses the baby. The child is here and gone. And it's in darkness. No one ever sees the child except maybe when it comes out. Being a stillborn. No memory of the child With other people outside the family, it's like darkness, obscurity. And either no one gave it a name in that time to begin with, or he had a name or she had a name, but no one remembers it. He's not saying it's a good thing. He's using it as a picture, as an analogy. He's saying this man lived his whole life and had nothing. Better to not have anything at all. Verse 5, he continues to explain it. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything. And literally... Yet it has more rest than he. Job did the same thing, Job 3.16. Remember Job, he's suffering. He's had everything taken away. And in his frustration, he says, or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never saw the light. He's saying, look, Lord, if this is the way life is going to be, then why was I even born? And sometimes people cry out in frustration like that. Now, Job didn't give up. Job didn't take his own life. That's not the point. Job persisted talking with God. And eventually, God gave him an answer. Not the answer he wanted, but an answer. And we'll look at that in just a moment. Solomon is saying, look, this miscarriage would have never even seen the sun, had to live under the sun, and it never knows anything. One Bible commentator, Michael Eaton, said, it's better to miscarry at birth than to miscarry throughout life. Why is that? How could Solomon say that? How could this commentator say that? A miscarriage never lives life under the sun and it dies. Uh, It's better, the miscarriage, to not live life under the sun because a person who lives a long, unbelieving life, like so many do, and ends up dying, just ends up going to hell. 
So how does that compare to the miscarriage? Let's keep going. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things. Do all not go to one place? Does the miscarriage not go to the same place that the person who lives 2,000 years? Double the life of Methuselah, the longest living person ever. You can read about him in Genesis 5. Adam himself lived 930 years. This person lived twice as long. Fine, if you want to really exaggerate, he lives 2,000 years and he still can't be satisfied. The miscarriage in God's providence, the woman miscarries, the baby goes to eternal rest with God. This guy lives 2,000 years, has everything he wants, and goes to hell. Solomon's using strong words as a comparison. He's trying to wake us up. You can have everything in life, wealth, family, a great country to live in. You can be patriotic. You can live a long, healthy, prosperous life. And if you just go to hell, what's the point? If you have nothing left over when it's all done, nothing left over spiritually, then what's the point? Because fearing God is more satisfying than having all that. Wouldn't you rather be a poor person who struggled through life and went to heaven for eternity than have everything in this life and be punished for eternity? Which is better? He's trying to get us to think in the terms and pictures of the ancient world. It's better to have God without great wealth than to have great wealth and be without God. Stop worshiping your wealth, he says, and focus on your relationship with God. Second lesson, contentment is more satisfying than covetousness. So it's still related to what he just said, but now he's focused more on the poor man. So we have the rich man who has everything and can't enjoy it. What about the poor man? Maybe they'll be happy. Maybe the poor guy will be happy in this world. In verses 7 through 10, he's going to give a series of Proverbs that really proves to us that we ought to be happy with what God gives us. Even if we're poor, we ought to be happy with what God has given us. Not be some unhappy person going through life dreaming of something better that never happens. The dreamer. He's already talked about the dreamer back in chapter 5. The person who has fantasies and demands, he said, the person who demands of God to answer his dreams, his fantasies. Give me what I want, God. And he warns us at the beginning of chapter 5 not to pray like that to God. Don't say, God, I know what's best for my life, and you better give it to me now. Well, here he's addressing contentment. Be content with what you have. Stop dreaming of this perfect life that's not even the plan God has for you. So he gives three Proverbs, three Proverbs. Verse 7 is a proverb. Look, he says, all a man's labor is for his mouth. And yet the soul, the NASB translates it appetite. The soul is, is the idea that you have your appetite for spiritual And physical things come from your soul. Your soul is not satisfied. Mankind works and works just so you can have food on the table. You work and work and work so you can eat. And then you eat and eat and eat so you can work. And it just goes around and around and around and around. And you just chase more and more things. Maybe if I had enough food for a month, I wouldn't have to work as hard. I may have had enough money for a year and 10 years and my whole life. But the more food that goes into the belly, the more a person wants. Have you ever noticed that? Your stomach expands and you're just all the more hungry the next day. Who's ever been hungry after Thanksgiving meal, right? The next day. A few people, yeah. A few people are honest. Your stomach expands a lot and you're full. 
And the next day, you just don't know why you're so hungry. That's, that's the analogy, the picture that he's given us. Now, now translate that into the desire for money, the desire for possessions. They're never satisfied. Mankind is never satisfied. A person living in the world and not having God as a Savior will never find satisfaction and enjoyment. You can only find true satisfaction in God. If you follow Him, if you're one of His people, then you get enjoyment and satisfaction. Not like your life is always going to be happy, and you're going to get exactly what you want, but you're going to get what God wants for you. And ultimately, that will be more satisfying than anything this world can offer. A person living in the world, not having God, they're never going to find satisfaction. They're just going to crave and crave and crave more and more. He's never satisfied. Now the next proverb in verse 8 is in the form of two questions. This verse has always puzzled commentators. We all know that there are two questions and they should be answered negatively. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? I think the best understanding here is to say, well, maybe the person's just not wise. Maybe they're foolish, and that's why they can't enjoy things. Maybe the poor man, for example, the poor man, if he had a little more wisdom, then he would enjoy the things as he gets them. This question, though, implies a negative answer. Being a wise unbeliever is just as bad as being a foolish unbeliever. What does it matter? What does it matter in the end? What's the ultimate advantage? You can have all the wisdom of the world, still go to hell. You can be a foolish unbeliever, still go to hell. Same place. They end up in the same place. There's no really advantage unless you have God. Then wisdom means quite a bit. Biblical wisdom. But if you don't have God, you can be the smartest atheist in the world. What does that matter in the end? When your short, Havel vapor life is over, what's the advantage? There is not one. And he goes on to say, what's the advantage that the poor man has? Knowing how to walk before the living. Now the phrase to walk before the living, it means to live so as to please others. So the poor man has nothing. And Solomon's saying, how does it help the poor man if he learns how to beg or serve others or to get a good job and start making some money? What does that really do for his whole life? Does it satisfy his soul? If the poor man gets a little money and learns to live like everybody else, does that really help him in the end? Does it really help to send these missionaries to Africa and just give them a little food but not teach them the gospel? To dig a well for water but not tell them about Jesus? There's no advantage for that poor man. If he learns how to live like people who have money, he's just going to be a wealthy person going to hell. Whether rich or poor, all mankind has the same appetite. Give me more, more, more. The rich man says, just one dollar more, that's all I need. Just give me another dollar, another dollar tomorrow, and keep on. The poor man says the same thing. So he concludes with this last proverb here in verse 9. What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. Finally, a little advice, Solomon. Sometimes he, he goes on and on with what the world thinks. And it takes a while. We have to track like the ancient people did and read sometimes a two, three chapters before he comes to a conclusion. But here in this section, he says what the eyes see, that's better than what the soul desires. 
Here's how people say it today. Better is a bird in the hand than two in the bush. It's better to be content with what you have now than dream and always be thinking about what you might have, what you want, what would make your life happy. Be content with what God has given you now. What you actually have in the hand is better than what you're dreaming of having in the future. Proverbs 12, 11 says the same thing. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread. The person who gets up and goes to work and plods along every day. But he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Just sitting around dreaming. You know, someday I'm going to have all these things. I'm not going to get up and do anything today, but someday I'm going to have all of these things. It's pointless. Be content. This too is Havel. Thinking like that is Havel in a striving after wind. It's a fantasy world. Always dreaming. It's like watching a movie all the time, 24-7, dreaming that that's your life. And he says, stop doing that. It's Havel. It's a waste of time. What do you catch when you catch the wind? You have nothing. It's fleeting. It's a vapor. It's Havel. Don't covet what you don't have. Don't chase after a vapor, a mist. That's idolatry. New Testament says that. The Old Testament says that. Covetousness is idolatry. Always wanting what other people have. To the point you're even willing to sin. Even sin in your mind. Constantly dreaming about it. Wasting your life. Be content with what God has given you. Stop chasing the world's dreams. That's a big problem. Just shut off the TV. Turn off the internet. You'd want to buy a lot less stuff. We would all spend less money. The advertising industry is designed to get us to spend more money. Paul said he was content when he was suffering, when he was in prison. Philippians 4.11, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. So if God gives him not much at all, he knows how to get along, be content. I also know how to live in prosperity if God blesses him with a lot. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong if God blesses you with wealth. It's how your heart views it and how you live your life with that wealth. Are you God's? Are you owned by Christ as a wealthy person? Paul says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What's the secret? What is it? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That doesn't mean you can go out and play the best football game and sports game ever. If you get that written on your your face, that's not what it means. It means that no matter what I'm going through, Christ is my focus. He strengthens me. If I have a lot and I'm tempted to sin with it, Christ will strengthen me so I do the right thing. If I have nothing and I'm tempted to steal or I'm tempted to hate or I'm tempted to covet, Christ strengthens me. He helps me make it through all the things in life that I'm going through. So let's fear God because he's more satisfying than wealth. Second point was contentment is more satisfying than covetousness. And the third one, really the the biggest one that he gets more direct about, is that God's sovereignty is beyond our understanding. God's sovereignty is beyond our understanding. In the last few verses, 10 through 12 here. You see, the response to those case studies was it's not fair. It's not fair, God, that you would give somebody all these things and they can't even enjoy it, that their life is miserable. That's not fair. And he gives us those proverbs in the middle section to teach us about contentment. 
But ultimately, this is an attack against God's sovereignty when we say that. God, you don't give them the ability. And now you have a whole movement in our world today that says, okay, if God's not going to do it, we'll do it. We'll bring our idea of equality out and we'll enforce it upon people. What's the problem with that? Well, there's a lot of problems with it. But one is we're not God. And so we can't truly even have a biblical idea of equality in the world unless you study your Bible as a Christian and, and try to implement that in your own sphere. But do you really think that certain people in this world are going to distribute equality correctly? Who can even decide what equality is except God? And last I checked, most governments in the world aren't turning to the Bible to answer that question. They're listening to the crowds. They're listening to the riots. They're listening to what's happening on TV. They're listening to groups of people who pressure them or sometimes pay them. God has spoken. And here's one of the things he said. He's going to show us here that, look, life's not fair according to our measurement of things. People are going to complain about it. Here's how Solomon answers it. Verse 10, whatever exists has already been named. What kind of answer is that, Solomon? Well, we've got to stop and look at the words, look at the grammar. What is he talking about here? Everything that exists, us, people, the universe, all created things, has already been named. It's already been called by its name. William Barrick, he was a professor of mine in seminary. He says the passive, been named here, it's already been named, infers that God is the actual agent. Ancient Near Eastern peoples regarded giving a name to something or someone as appointing his or her character. Naming displays authority. So you see a lot about names in the Bible where they chose a name for their child and then the child grew up to be what the name said they would or how the name describes them. And what Dr. Verick is saying is that the ancient peoples thought that when they gave a name to something or someone, it was appointing the character of it and it was also saying you have authority over it. So the father has authority over his children. He would name the children and try to give them a name that he thought that child would grow up into. But these things have already been named. Everything's already been named. So it's really saying that God has named everything, which means God created everything, which means God controls everything. We're really no match for God. We can't sit here and argue that it's not fair, God, when he's created every single thing and upholds everything. Who are we to debate with that kind of God? But Solomon goes on. He says, that's who God is, the one who creates and names everything. And it's known what man is. The word for man throughout this whole chapter is Adam or Adam in Hebrew. The Bible tells us what kind of creature man is. In fact, God named man, didn't he? He named Adam. And God's naming and having authority over all the creation includes naming and having authority over mankind. You know how God came up with the name Adam? Because he took the dust of the ground, the earth. Adama is the ground. He took the Adama and formed Adam. So the name for mankind that God gave is related to the dust, to the earth. Why would God give us that name? Well, he wants to remind us that we're made of dust, that he created us. And then later it says that we will return to dust. 
when we die. Who are we to argue with God that something's not fair when he created all things and we're but dust? You see that said in the Psalms as well. That's just a reminder that we will return to dust. Life is quick. It's fleeting. It's, it's here and gone. And he goes on. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. The him there should be capitalized. The context here is God. We can't dispute with God. He named all things. He created all things. Who are we to dispute with God? Adam and Eve tried to dispute with God. How'd that go? They just made excuses. That's all they could do. It's not my fault. It's her fault. They wanted to know all that God knew. They wanted to be like God. Satan tempted them. He said, you can be like God. He's just trying to keep you from being your best. Don't you want your best life now? Don't you want your best life now? God's just holding you back. If you eat some of that fruit, you will be like God. That's what he said. So they ate. And instead of being like God, their immortality faded. They began to die. Their death was brought suddenly to the forefront. They didn't have to worry about death. And suddenly after that, God says, remember I told you you would die? Your soul's already dead and your body's going to start dying now. And let me offer this sacrifice for you so you can be forgiven, but ultimately your body is going to die and all of your children after that as well. The point, only God determines what happens in the world and in my life. That's it. I can't argue with God. Yeah, he's a good God, so I can trust that whatever he's doing, even if I don't like it, is good. The Bible tells us he's a good God. He evidences that he's a good God with creation, with salvation, with the scriptures. But God determines what happens in the world and in my life. We cannot argue our case with him. It's impossible to change how the world works. Strive in your family and in your life and in your country and in your local government to make positive change, to do what the Bible tells us. But don't think you're going to fix the world. Remember Solomon says, you can't straighten what's crooked. It's crooked because of sin. It's crooked because of the fall. And we can't straighten it. And it does no use to complain about it. Cry out to God for help. Cry out to God that he will help you through these struggles and temptations in life. But don't think you can play God and fix the world. God has set it up this way for a reason. Worry about your holiness and your family and your workplace and growing and telling them the gospel instead of thinking you can do a better job than God in governing the world. To say it's not fair is to say that I could do a better job, God. Verse 11, he starts to explain this a bit more. For there are many words which increase hevel. Again, there's that Hebrew word again, hevel. There are many things you could say to God and argue and debate and debate, but it's just, it's a smoke. It's a mist. It's a vapor. It means nothing. It's just going to be blown away. The more you complain to God about nothing, about running the world better, that's what mankind does. That's what the unbeliever does. They babble on. They babble on about how God needs to do what they want. And here he's saying that debate with God on what we think is right and fair is pointless. God knows what's best. God knows what's right. Here's what the Old Testament scholar Walt Kaiser said. All words are useless and just so much hot air. A person might just as well acknowledge one's own limitations and begin immediately to start fearing God as the proper starting point. If you're here today and you don't follow Christ, you're not a Christian, 
Stop complaining to God. That's not going to do you any good. Just acknowledge that, that you're limited, that you can only do so much, and, and trust in God, follow His Son, Jesus Christ, turn from your sin, and be saved. Then you can start to enjoy, truly enjoy, and be satisfied with what God has given you. He goes on, he says, what's the advantage here? What's the advantage to man? What is the advantage to Adam, to mankind? Well, arguing and debating with God leads nowhere. There's no advantage to that, he says. It doesn't lead to any positive advantage. Just stop. The wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, could not add anything to what God had said, unless God inspired him to write a book. Solomon couldn't change God's mind on how God governs the world. You're going to do it? Not at all. How about Job? Job was a godly man. Job had great wealth. Job didn't have 100 kids. He had 10. And it says that he was righteous. So unlike the ungodly man that Solomon's talking about, Job was righteous. He still lost it all. All his children were killed. He lost all the money, all the businesses. And he complains and complains. He just says, why? I just want an answer. And then the friends come and they're no help. Go to Job 42. So go back to your left from Ecclesiastes. And let's look at Job 42, verse 1. God finally answers at the end of the book. But he doesn't give Job the answer that Job wants. And that's okay. Because he's God and we're not. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord. So after God gives this answer, and the whole answer is in the previous chapters here, and God says, were you there when I created these things? Were you there when I created the stars? Were you there when I created these animals? Were you there when I created the behemoth and the Leviathan? Could you have done that? Could you have even stood before Leviathan? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I'm not going to change your mind, God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's what God had said to Job. Who is this? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God's the only one that has his own counsel and he hides it from us and we don't know it. Hear now, Job says, and I will speak. And I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent, or lay down in dust and ashes. God, I shouldn't have demanded you to answer me. You gave and you took away, and you know what's best. And that's where Job ended up. Let me read to you Isaiah 45, 9 through 12. And see if this doesn't sound familiar in the New Testament. We'll look at the verse that quotes this. But Isaiah 45, 9 through 12. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Woe to you. Cursed is the one who fights, who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, To what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me 
the work of my hands. God's being sarcastic. You're going to tell me the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. And I ordained or predestined all their host. God does it all. God is sovereign. Romans 9.20 quotes this. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? So he picks up this theme that's in Isaiah. It's also in Jeremiah. Who are you to answer back to God, to question God? The thing that's created, the pot doesn't speak back to the potter. Why did you make me? Why did you make me like this? Here's how Solomon finishes out in verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his Havel life, of his quick life, of his vapor life? Who knows? Well, God knows. That's the answer. We don't know. The implication is man doesn't know. Who knows what's good for mankind? God does. God knows. No one knows what is good for man except God. He's the only one who really knows. He's the only one who can make sure that his purposes are fulfilled. And they're for good. Ultimately, they're for his glory. Man, Solomon says, will spend life like a shadow. The days of his life, they're like a shadow. Shadow's here for a moment, and the sun moves, and the shadow's gone. That's how fast. It's like a vapor. It's like a mist. It's like a shadow. Man's life is short. For who can tell what will be after him under the sun? Who can tell? Only God. You don't know what's going to happen after your life, but God does because he'll be there and he's already planned it. He's already predestined it and he'll ordain everything that happens. He already has done it. God's sovereignty is beyond our understanding. That's why I titled this point, God's sovereignty is completely outside of our knowledge and understanding. All we get is right here and what we see happen in history. And that's it. And this is more important than what we see happen in history. Don't question God. Don't debate with God. Don't chase after wealth. Be content with what he's given you. Don't look at the world and say, that's not fair. God, what are you doing? You can say, man, leader, that's not fair. Judge, that's not fair. But don't say to God, that's not fair. Who are we to talk back to God? Let's focus on the right things. I'm just going to conclude with Jesus' words in Mark, Gospel of Mark. And verse uh, chapter 10, verse 29. Listen to what he says. People are worried about things. They're worried about possessions. They're worried about losing what they have. The world cares all about its wealth. Mark 10, verse 29. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms. So he hits it all. The money, the hundred children, the thousand years of life, all of that stuff. For my sake, and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, that's satisfaction of the soul now already because you know you're saved. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, that's the church. Along with persecutions, they're going to come too. And in the age to come, you're going to get eternal life. Many who are first will be last. Many who think they have everything right now in this world will be last. And the last People who have nothing but trust in the Lord will be first. That's the gospel. Stop chasing things. Fear God. Submit to him. Submit to Christ. And you will be satisfied. You will have everything you've ever dreamed for. And some things you don't even know 
that you've dreamed for. Lord, I do pray that you would grant us that we could all enjoy the riches that you give us. Whatever we have, we didn't deserve it. And you give it as a good gift. The only way we could truly enjoy it, though, is if we're saved, if we have a a pure heart that follows Christ, let us turn from our sin, let us follow him. He is our Savior. He is our sacrifice. It's in his name we pray, and in his name we now celebrate the Lord's Supper. Amen.